You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Focus Church, good to be with you today, and those of you who are watching online, and also those of you obviously who are here with us this morning, I know some of you may not realize it, but if you're feeling a little off, it's just that you've never been to church on Master Sunday before. Uh, Okay, just checking. Normally, it's like the worst, least attended Sunday of the year, Uh, and I always tell all of my friends who are pastors in other cities, I'm like, because it happens around Easter all the time, I'm like, you don't understand. You just don't really understand how this plays into church life in the CSRA, Uh, but particularly in November, it's a little bit odd. I did have one of my worship team members said that they listened really well in the first service uh, because they were going to be watching the masters on their phone in the second service. I won't tell you who that is. So, good morning again, and we're glad that you're here. This is week three of our series, Lines in the Sand, and I hope today that you are ready to be encouraged, comforted, and confronted by the Word of God. How many of you know that God's Word is going to do that? It's supposed to do that. Uh, Unless you are perfect, then you will need to be confronted about some things in your life today that aren't like God wants them to be, that aren't like Christ. Uh, And at the same time, we're going to be encouraged and comforted. Each Sunday that we gather together, I believe, should be all of those things happening in our lives. So we're looking at the, I guess it's not the ability, but it's the default mechanism in our lives to draw lines in the sand, then take sides, build camps, and then all of a sudden have lifelong tribes that we are a part of on the side we believe is a non-negotiable in order to do life. The problem with it is a lot of times these non-negotiables are really secondary, tertiary, ancillary, and any other area that you could think of. Let's just put it simply, they're, they're a lot of times they're stupid. They're, they're issues that aren't important, and yet we've drawn a line in the sand, and we're on this side, and the other person's on that side, and, and we let it define our relationships. This is kind of the human experience, that we find some difference that we have with somebody else, And instead of celebrating that difference, we fixate on it in a very negative or antagonistic way, and we let it define our relationships, and they end up being toxic. And they also end up not reflecting who we're supposed to be as believers. Because I'm talking about Christians this morning. This is what we're talking about. I don't, uh, listen, it is not abnormal and I expect there will be fighting between camps, if you will, and, and different decisions and different ways that we view things in life, preferences. But this is not how it's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. Christian tribalism is not an option. And yet it's the worst type of tribalism there is because as people of the cross, we've been called to a higher way. We've been called to a better way. We've been called to the way of Jesus. And Jesus came to remove the us against them mentality that divides us. And he came as he prayed in John 17 to make us one, to make us his people Let's read from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning as we start off verse 13 through 15 to help us embrace the way of peace and the way of peacemakers because Jesus is our peace and he is a peacemaker and that is who we're supposed to be as followers of Christ. This really could be an overarching scripture for the entire series. Verse 13, Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has, been made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles in this particular passage. We said in a, in a message weeks ago, Gentiles isn't just a group of people, it's, it's a lot of different people within a group. It, it described all kinds of different people. 
And so we would, we, there's so much in this verse that I don't have time to get into, but here is what's clear. It's clear that tribalism, fighting, division, hostility are not indicative of Jesus, and neither should it be indicative of Jesus' followers. It's not supposed to mark the church. It's not supposed to mark people that are called his people, sons and daughters of the same king. It's not supposed to mark our relationship with God, and it's not supposed to mark our relationship with other people. We're supposed to be one. He draws people to God. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus alone does. He alone has solved the problem of our relationship with God and with other people. He alone is the one that draws us into right relationship through his blood, as the scripture says, to be one with God and then one with one another. And we know we're supposed to do both. That's the greatest commandment, that we would love God with all, everything that we have and love people the same way. He also says in John that we can't say that we love God and not love our brother. All of this is indicative of how we are supposed to live. This is both a practical and spiritual passage that Paul is he's writing to remind the Ephesians that Christian tribalism is not going to be put up with by him and neither is it going to be put up with by God. As a matter of fact, if we talk practically in context, this whole dividing wall was, was supposed to be a, a, a fence or a balustrade, if you will, that was in the temple. And it, it divided the place that the Jews could worship God. And on the other side of the wall, this is where the Gentiles could worship God. And they couldn't go any further. Their ethnicity kept them outside on this wall. As a matter of fact, there was a sign, some historians say, that as you got there, it said, no further unless you're a Jew. And if you go any further and you're not a Jew, you can be or will be killed. And that's how worship was set up, divided. As a matter of fact, Paul had been accused of taking Trophimus into the inner gate in Acts 2 because he was an Asian Gentile and he was accused of taking him into the place that only Jews were allowed to worship. And Jesus said, I came to bring down, tear down that dividing wall, tear down that hostility that all can come to the throne of grace, that all can worship Jesus. And this is the reality that we live in today. Amen. So what do I mean as we look at this and we're drawing the line? Well, what's the line that we're talking about today? Because as we have talked about throughout these, these weeks, that God has these lines that, that he looks at in our lives, and Jesus has come to bring us outside these lines. He's basically come to, hey, if you're on this side and you're on this side, he's going to grab both of our hands and he's going to pull them together and he's going to put them together. Week one, we looked at politics. Right? And, and the fact that there's the left and there's the right. And, and Jesus stands here and he, and he says, listen, I'm going to find some things to, to pull you together. There's more that you agree with than you disagree with. Then week two, we looked at spirituality and said there's the, the hypocrite and the work in progress. Or the hypocrite and the one that's being sanctified. And today we're going to look at hope versus reality. And what I want you to know is it's not a versus. It's not an either or. It's not a fight. It's a both and in the kingdom of God. Yes, I'm a hypocrite at times, but I'm also a work in progress, and I'm being sanctified to be more like Christ. Yes, there's a reality of that we're living in today, but at the same time, it's not just reality. There's also hope. What do I mean by that? Well, primarily, I want to look at the line in the sand as it relates to the issue of pain and suffering in this life versus hope, and that's how we kind of draw the line. What do we do with the seemingly incongruent realities of a loving, sovereign, good, heavenly Father and then the reality that we live in of people dying of, of illnesses and terminal illnesses and, and what we're dealing with now with COVID and corona or, or hurricanes and fires and tornadoes and typhoons where people lose their life and property, the Holocaust, slavery, racism, poverty, abuse, oppressions, abortion, genocide, sex trafficking, and every other injustice that continues to plague us in our world. What do we do with those seemingly two incongruent things, a good father and our reality? There are three typical responses to this seeming paradox. First has been the people who just kind of throw out the religious platitudes, like ignoring that there's anything difficult going on in this life. Well, God's good, brother. He's good. He's good all the time. I mean, I, I know you just lost your wife this week, but God's good. He is, but this is painful. 
And we, and we live in this place of where we kind of ignore that pain and suffering is a reality of our human condition. And we try to live in this kind of ultra hyper spiritual world where we're, we're saying, well, this is just not really what's going on. And, and God is this and this and, and don't worry about that. And honestly, what that does is we're not dealing rightly and correctly with our emotions of hurt and pain and betrayal that are real. And even we're ignoring the Bible's honest prayers that we see throughout the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a prayer of David that was then echoed by Jesus himself, the Son of God. And we go on and we act like things aren't going on that are going on. Another response is just to become cynical. Just hold to the incongruence of this harsh reality and and a good God, and so we say, well, God must not be good, and so I'm just going to be cynical. This is just the way it is, a cynical Christian. And then the third response, and the one that I believe is our response today, is a both-and response. This is Jesus outside the lines, if you will, that we've been addressing throughout the series. We would call this person a, a hopeful realist. This is where we should be. This is where we know and continue to believe that God is good. He is a good father and that he is always in control, that he is sovereign. And yet there are painful realities that all of us live in in this life that are difficult and hard. We believe and affirm what Romans 5 tells us, that this is where hope comes from. It says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. When's the last time you rejoiced in your sufferings? Why would we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character is what produces hope. We're also affirming, and here's the good news, this is where hope comes from, we're also affirming that things are not as they're going to be fully yet. They're not. Here again, we have this tension of the lines that we draw and the camps that we get in, and, and it's the line between hope and reality. And Jesus says, there's not a line between hope and reality. I live outside this line. It's hope and reality. Jesus is coming to help us see a both-and experience that should accompany the Christian life here and now. In the Bible, I believe the quintessential wrestling with this issue of suffering is found in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job. And you don't have to turn there, but you could read it if you like. And just a little bit of backstory. Job, who was a righteous man and, and followed God, lost everything that he loved in one day. All of his children and their spouses, all of his livestock, everything that he had to make money and wealth, all of it gone in one day. All of his friends didn't know what to do with this. Like, well, we really don't know how to explain this tragedy, Job, that's gone on in your life, all this calamity. His wife doesn't know what to do with it either. At one point, Job is sitting, the scripture says, in ashes, basically in the dust, and he's got these boils all over his body, and they're painful, and so he's taking like a, a shard from some sort of pot or something, and the scripture says that he's just scraping away at them. I'm like, ugh! And, and his wife looks at him in this, in this terrible, tragic, you know, situation. And she says, look at you. Look at where you are. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Do you still hold fast that God is good and that he's in charge? Why don't you just curse God and die? So after chapter after chapter of Job's friends telling him that he must have done something wrong to be in the situation that he's in. Anybody ever told you that before, that the situation that you're in, is, it must be some kind of sin in your life. You must have done something wrong. And, and, I mean, obviously there are times where there is sin in our life, and we have brought on things upon ourselves, but that's not the overall monolithic definition of everything that we do. Well, it must be something wrong, and that's how his friends, that's the plausible answer here. What's wrong with you with all this tragedy and calamity? So we're left with really three plausible answers and it's kind of the one that Job's friends had. Either all suffering is a result of our sin and our bad decisions, that we live strictly in a cause and effect world where we are to blame for all of our suffering. We're the cause of it. That's one plausible reality. Or we can have the belief that God really isn't good after all, even if there is a God, because a good God would not allow this kind of reality, this kind of mess that we're in, and he doesn't deserve our love, affection, fidelity, and loyalty anyway. Or the both and 
Jesus outside the lines reality, which is a biblical framework for this. Hope in the midst of real pain and suffering that we have to go through in this life. Here's the reality. As I look at that particular passage of Scripture from Romans 5 that I read a moment ago, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. Here's what I know. It's not in ignoring the painful realities of our suffering that we find hope, but trusting in God's promises in the middle of our painful realities that we find hope. It's not ignoring it like it's not there. It's trusting that God is not done, that God is not finished, that God is a God of hope, even in the middle of this thing that is awful. That's hope in the midst of suffering. That's a reality and hope together. They can be congruent in the kingdom of God. See, I believe the Bible is very honest about how messed up our world is and that it's also passing away. So I often say we're caught in the middle, if you will, between the, the now of Jesus winning the victory and he is able, but we're caught between that now reality of what Christ did on the cross and the not yet of him making all things right, which he will do. We're caught in the middle of how God created everything to be perfect in the Garden of Eden where we are because of sin and what Jesus and God are taking us back to in the New Jerusalem, the perfection of New Jerusalem, the perfection of Eden, and here we are caught in the middle as people that were what? Created for perfection. And here, you want to know why there's so much anxiety in our world? You want to know why we have with so much angst? We're like one of the most anxious societies in history. And we, and we operate and we relate to one another out of those anxieties and out of our fears. And you want to know why? Because we weren't created to live in this angst. We were created for the garden. We were created for the new Jerusalem. But right now there's a reality that we're in the middle. But we're in the middle with Jesus. We're in the middle with Jesus, my friends. And this is hope and reality at the same time that he is going to restore us. If we're created for perfection, which we were, and that is our ultimate place that we're going to be, which it is, according to God's word, Genesis and Revelation, and we lost it, then we're still yearning for it. Is it any wonder that we have so much angst right now? It's perfectly understandable and natural to rage against suffering and pain and sorrow because we long for a time where there's gonna be no more of that. What do you mean? Well, Revelation 21.4 tells us what it will be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's where we're headed. But right now, there is a collective angst and a longing for things to be made right. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that even all of creation, nature, is groaning for things to be made right. I remember how mad I would get, and I still do, when my children or people that I love that are close to me, my wife, but particularly also like when my children were younger and they were having things as children do that, that hurt them, I remember how mad I would get when they would get hurt. Any other parents that way? It's just like, there's nobody really to blame. It was an accident, but I wanna punch somebody, right? I remember one time when Josiah fell, and I think he was riding a scooter or something. I don't know all the details, but I know he, he fell, and he busted his face up really bad, busted his lip up really bad, and he, and he walks inside, and it's just his face is just awful looking, and i just like, who did it? You know, and it's like nobody did it. He did it. He was out there doing something, and I wanted to, I wanted to hurt somebody. I was mad. Or the story that you've heard me tell a lot, if you've been around here, the time that, that Caleb, my oldest, was playing baseball and he was 10 years old and it was a night game and they were throwing, warming up and somebody threw a ball from right field to left field where he was and he lost it in the lights and the ball hit him right below the bridge of his nose, right here above his teeth and it knocked out four of his teeth and there's blood just pouring out of his mouth and I see this, my son just walking across the field stunned with blood pouring out of his mouth and I'm like, I, I hopped the fence and I was, I was ready to kill somebody. But there was, nobody to, there was nobody to blame. It's just there's this anger when things aren't, this isn't how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be hurt like this. We're not supposed to be marginalized like this. We're not supposed to be suffering like this. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now going through things right now where you're honestly praying, God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. 
Listen, I want you to know if you're praying that way, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. We can look to the word of God. Psalm 22, David crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Ever been there? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's one place that I don't like to be where I'm the taking the counsel of my own soul and my own emotions. And that's the only thing that I can turn to. This is honesty before God. This is how you pour out your heart, as the scripture implores us to do. This is how you pour out your heart before God in an emotionally, spiritually healthy way. This is a purity, this is a purity, this type of prayer that God can work with as he walks humbly with us through every difficulty of life. Did you know that God can't heal what you're unable to admit is hurt? Did you know that God can't help you if you're unable to admit that you need his help? And yet this is what the Bible's saying. Hey, cry out to him. Cry out for his hand. Cry out for his help. Be emotionally honest about the fact that this is not how you expected. This is not what you wanted, but you're yielding to God. You're giving your emotions to him. He can handle it. Don't be fake. Oh, bless God, brother. Everybody in my family just died yesterday. Bless God, brother. That's not how Job took this. Don't be fake. Don't be cynical. That's just how it's going to be. Life just really stinks, doesn't it? Don't be fatalistic. But be full of faith and full of hope as you honestly pour out your heart before God. As Psalm 62, 8 says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Do you need a refuge? The Bible says that that's who God is, that we run into him. He's a strong tower, that we run into him and we seek refuge from him. But you know what? You only seek refuge if you think you need it. Listen, I know I need it. So we run into him. This is honesty before God. Jesus paints an even clearer picture. Let's fast forward out of the book of Job into the book of John in the New Testament. In the story of Lazarus that's found in John chapter 11, you can turn there if you have your Bible with you or if you're at home watching, have your Bible, John 11. We're going to kind of skip through this story a little bit. But I want you to understand that in this particular story, Lazarus died. He's a friend of Jesus, Mary and Martha. That's that story, right? And and Martha was indignant. She was mad. Mary was, was reserved, she was sad, but they both felt like Jesus had failed them by not showing up in time to heal Lazarus and he had died. Where were you? But I want us to consider when we're like that, when we're like the psalmist, when we're like Mary and Martha, where are you, God? Why is this happening, God? I want us to consider when we find ourselves caught between the now and the not yet of the reality and the hope of glory that we have in Jesus, that there may be a different reality that we do not see. If we could imagine that God is actually, think about this, what if God is closer to you than you think he is, even though it feels like he's miles away? What if God is more for you than you believe that he is because right now it feels like he's against you? And the Bible, along with much of my own experience and probably yours, tells us this is in fact true. That there is so much going on that we don't know. There is so much going on that we don't see. That we don't see the beginning from the end like our Heavenly Father does. There are things the Scripture says that are too marvelous for me to understand and to comprehend. And I leave those in the hands of the sovereign God who does. But God's plan, listen to me church, God's plan is always in motion and it's always for his glory and his glory is always going to be for your good yeah well this doesn't seem very good yet well it's not over and it may not be good but we then we'll go back to Romans 8 and we say that God is able to take even the things that aren't good and work them for his glory and your good doesn't mean that the thing's good it just means God's going to work it out and he's not finished yet doing all of that working God's plan is always in motion. And in this case, if we go back to John 11, what we see is this, that everybody was mad, right? 
Everybody was mad because Lazarus didn't get healed. Have you ever been there where like, it's just collective anger because things didn't go the way we all thought it should go? No, we've never held that. There's this collective anger because everybody's like, where were you, Jesus? You're the miracle worker. You're the healer. Where were you? Out there doing stuff for everybody else? This is your friend. Why didn't you heal him? Now he's dead. Now he's gone. What they didn't realize is that Jesus had something else planned that they didn't see, that they didn't know. We know the beginning from the end of this story. So we're like, we're reading it knowing what's going to happen. They had no idea. All they knew was their friend was gone and he was dead. But Jesus knew that all of this was not over. He knew something that nobody else could know or see, that there was going to be a resurrection instead of a healing. That he wanted to have a resurrection for Lazarus, not just a healing from him being sick. Something greater, something more indicative of the power, something more foreshadowing of what he was going to do in the lives of those who called on his name. But back to Mary and Martha, they were still upset because they didn't know this was going to happen. They were upset. They're wondering why Jesus didn't show up sooner. Thought you were our friend. This is your friend. Like, if you're going to heal anybody, you should have healed him. John 11, here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Just leaves that hanging. And it seems a little bit preachy, like at the wrong time, like this kind of the coming at well, you know, everything's going to work out. Where he should be angry and he should be sad. But Jesus knew that what he was about to do, and yet watch this. He knew what he was about to do, and he could have been callous, and he could have been, oh, y'all are ridiculous. Just, all right, hold on. That's how he could have responded. That's how, you know, if we're honest, that's how we respond a lot of times. Oh, you're ridiculous. Let, let me show you what the Bible says. Okay, now I want to listen. Here's what he does. Jesus knew what he was about to do, and yet Jesus took a moment, and he got angry with Martha at the fact that death was hurting his friends, and he got sad with Mary at the fact that they were grieving, and it made him sad that his friends were sad. John eleven thirty three. 33. Here's the passage of Scripture. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. The original Greek for deeply moved was indignant. He got angry. He was angry as a hornet, if you want to use that idiom. Not angry at the crowd, not angry at Mary and Martha, but he's angry with them, and he's angry for them. What is he angry at? He's angry at the enemy that had attacked his friends. He's angry at the enemy that would plague them and continue to plague people made in his image. He's angry at death because this was not how it was supposed to be. And he didn't want death to get the final word. He was angry at death that was hurting those that he loved. So watch this now for all of you fixers out there. Got any fixers out there? Don't be liars and fixers. Here's like all you husbands know that your wife has probably accused you of being a fixer in the past at some point. And when they've said this, and this isn't a joke, this is a reality, and guys, we kind of brush it off as a joke, but just a little marital advice real quick here. I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen. I'm sure none of y'all have heard that, but in case you do, you'll be ready. And it's not just guys that like to fix things. I mean, my wife's a fixer. See, she's a fixer. And the, the problem with fixing is, is if, we're, if we just try to fix things, because we do, even in our culture right now, it's like, well, what do we do to fix this? And what do we do to fix this? And what can we do to fix this? Is that we want to have thin solutions to thick problems. And that's not going to fix it. It won't. So what does? Watch what happens. See, before we start to jump to the answer, which is, well, how can I fix this? How can I make this better? How can I do this? 
Watch what Jesus does. Before he made things right in a very wrong situation, he entered into the situation and he shared the situation with them. See, we should learn from this example, church, that Jesus didn't rebuke Mary and he didn't rebuke Martha for having some sort of unspiritual response. He didn't say, oh, come on, you guys. Where's your faith? I'm about to do something even greater. You're so mad and you're so sad. Oh, poor Mary's crying over there. Pull your bootstraps up. Let's get with it. This is kind of, no, this is what Jesus did. He actually did what we're supposed to do. He didn't say, oh, well, it's either or. He said, no, it's both and. And he stepped into that line and he stepped into their painful reality and he affirmed their negative reactions to death as something that was realistic, emotionally honest, even godly, as we said a moment ago, to react to a world that is not operating like God intended for it to operate. See, if there's something that we should be indignant about, it's situations that we see in this world currently that are operating like God never intended them to operate like. That should cause us to have the same character as God, to hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. So we're emotionally honest and godly to react to a world that is suffering and crying out. So Jesus shared and felt their pain before healing their pain. He felt and shared their grief before comforting their grief. He shared and felt the hunger before he fed them. He shared and felt their nakedness before he clothed them. And he shared and felt their hopelessness before bringing hope. And Jesus still does the same today, and it's what he wants his people, the church, to do today as well. To enter in empathetically to the situations that we find ourselves in. Just like I, as a father, get angry about things that hurt those that I love, I believe Jesus proves in this particular story that we have a God who does that for his children as well. When it comes to dealing with oppression, injustice, suffering, sorrow, and death, aren't you glad that you have a God that gets indignant about those things and knows that they're not right? I'm so glad that that's who God is. Well, how do you know? Because when this happens, Jesus is realistic and he gets indignant. Just as the case where Jesus got mad and sad right here. He got mad at death. He got sad with his friends who were grieving. And since Jesus, the Bible says, is the fullness of the image of God, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, then I know this is who God is. This is what God's character is like. This is what God feels when we go through the pain and the difficulty in this life that he never intended for us to have to walk through. This is where Jesus comes in and reminds us as an understanding realist that everything is broken, groaning, and longing for things to be made right for now, and they will be, because here's the hope. At the same time that everything is not right, they will be in the future. That is realism and hope. Like the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, probably the most well-known hymn there is, Strength for Today, and what does it say? bright hope for tomorrow strength for today to 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 have the strength to actually have victory and get through this difficulty today and also have a bright hope for tomorrow and for every tomorrow after that throughout eternity it is anchored in Jesus Christ we have hope suffering and pain are not the end of the story for those whose hope is anchored in Jesus Christ aren't you glad for that that Jesus has won the victory to make all things right. He has promised to clean up this mess that we're in the middle of right now in our current reality. And yet, here's where we are. It's like N.T. Wright says, hope is imagining God's future in the present. I'm imagining the hope that I have in Christ, although in the present right now, there is difficulty. And even God's sovereignty, he said, well, God's sovereign. Listen, that's not just an excuse just to give up. Even God's sovereignty should not be interpreted that God causes everything, but rather that God is able to do anything. God is able. Everything that happens is within God's will, but God does not will everything that happens. Have you ever had one of those awful nightmares that felt so real that when you woke up, you were just like, whoo, thank you, I don't have 74 kids. You know, I don't, whatever. It's like you thought 
Like you're, even in your dream, I've been there like, wake up, wake up, wake up. Please wake up. This is awful. And it doesn't have to be a nightmare, just something like I would never want to have happen. I said in the first service that, you know, I owned a tiger or something. I'm like, yeah, I don't know where that came from. I don't, I don't want to. But if I ever had a dream like that, you know, like, oh, thank God I don't own a tiger. Two dogs is enough. Sorry, my bad. Even God's love for us through the middle of this and his care for us and his sovereignty for us and his hope that we have in Christ, it allows us to know that as we're living in this world, as what's this dream got to do with anything, that at some point the day is coming for those whose hope is in Jesus Christ where we're going to wake up and everything's going to be right. Oh man, that was just a, oh, I'm glad there's a reality that's different than that for the rest of eternity. Back to our story about Lazarus, John 11, 43 through 44, and this is kind of the end of this. When he had said these things, Jesus that is, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There's so much here as we see the culmination of this exciting story. And here's where I'm saying this is a foreshadowing of what God was going to do for all of us in Christ. That all of us, though we were dead and wrapped in those grave clothes, were going to come out of those graves and be set free from that life of death to live a new life in Christ. I was texting with someone that I spent some time with this week, and he just said, brother, I came out of that grave. I ran out of that grave, and I'm never going back. And it's like, yes! That's the kind of life because so many times I see so many people running right back into the grave that they just ran out of. Why are you going back in there? That's a life of death in there. You've been there. You know what that's going to be like. And yet God has given us the power to run out of those graves, to be set free from a life of death that has bound us up, set us free to live for Jesus. That's what he did for Lazarus. That's what he does for us. But then, you know, you kind of have the Donnie Downer come in and say, well, I mean, isn't Lazarus just going to die again one day anyway? Why raise him up? We've been through these emotions once. Why go through it twice? Aren't you delaying the inevitable? Why fight against injustice and suffering and evil at all? I mean, it's just the way it is. Why are you bothering to fight against disease? We're all going to die some way at some point. Why do we take care of the poor if Jesus said the poor are always going to be with us? I mean, they're just, it's just part of it. What about broken relationships and marriage and friendship? Why fight it? I mean, why, let's just cut our losses and move on. Let's take the path of least resistance. But to not fight, the spiritual fight that God says that we're in, is to not bring justice, healing, restoration, redemption to the stories of our lives when we don't do that, we're not living as people of the kingdom of God. To give up, to throw our hands up, to not live and to bring the kingdom, we don't actually bring the kingdom, we live the kingdom. God's the one that brings the kingdom. We're the outworking of that kingdom. We're the embodiment of that kingdom. Does we live the way Christ has called us to live? As on earth as it is in heaven, it's not just a prayer, it's a way of life. And he told us, Jesus did, to pray and to act that way. Don't just pray this way. Live this way. If you're a follower of me, live in such a way that the kingdom of earth, kingdom of heaven, is coming to earth. Where we're going to set things right. Where we're going to pray for this. Where we're going to bring healing and restoration and redemption and justice and all the things where we see where people are not flourishing. That we try to make a change so they can flourish. And when we do that, Jesus said, we bring glimpses of heaven to earth, or as another hymn says, a foretaste of glory divine. A foretaste of God's future in the present. It's like a, a ray of sunshine coming through the clouds because we can't look at the whole thing because it would blind us. We can't see the entirety of God's manifest glory right now, but we can see rays of his glory breaking through in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we're supposed to be those bright lights in the earth right now. The rays of sunshine breaking through the clouds into the lives of people's lives where we get to say, come out. Come out of that dark place. Come out of that place of bondage. Come out of that place of death. Set him free. Set her free. Jesus has brought them from that to a new life.
And until Jesus returns to make things right, we're invited to participate in his glorious work in the reality of a broken and messy world where there's death, grief, tears, pain, but where none of those things are going to have the final period on the story of our lives if we belong to Jesus. That's hope. That's what I'm saying. No matter what you're going through, and I'm going to close that way in a second, that's hope. That's hope. A living hope. And this is a spiritual battle that you're fighting a lot of times with your own mind and your own heart. To believe what is unseen is actually more real than what you do see. That's faith. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that we don't see but are real. And it proves that we believe that life has conquered death when we live this way. And that Jesus has begun the reno in making our life and everything in this earth new. Till that day, as Revelation says, where it's all renovated and brand new. I was thinking this week, you know why we like renovation shows? Anybody in here like HGTV, stuff like that? Go ahead, you can raise your hand, it's okay. Nobody's going to judge you. This is no judgment zone. Some of you are like, I, I, I like HGTV. I watch it late at night. I hate to admit it. But here's the truth. I was thinking about why do I like renovation shows so much? Makeover shows of a, of a room or a house or a car or a motorcycle or whatever it is or just a, a piece of equipment. They've all, got all kinds of shows like that. Why do we like that so much? Because it's the heart of God. It's the image of God in each of us that goes, I love the fact that you can take something that seems old and useless and broken and forgotten and now Jesus can step into that reality and bring restoration and hope and newness and now it can be used for his glory until the time that everything is made perfect in his presence forevermore. It's not just the car. It's not just the gumball machine from the whatever, the 30s. We love all of that. I mean, that's why I like to cut grass. Right? Like, because I can immediately turn around and see something that looks better than it did. It's a little bit harder in the lives of people. It's a little bit harder in a life of difficulty and suffering to turn around and immediately see something better, except for the fact that lives are changed and there's hope and that is better. That we're living in loving Jesus. So this is an invitation that we receive to join this fight and in this praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now every battle that we fight may not end in victory. Let me just encourage you in that. Every battle that we fight here is not gonna end in victory. Did you know that? I mean, we should all know that by now. Some diseases will take those that we love. Some marriages will fail and end. We're going to hurt. We're going to cry. We're going to suffer. We're going to experience loss and pain and betrayal in this life. Jesus said this this way. All these things you're going to have happen in the world, but take heart. I've overcome that. I've overcome the world. I've overcome all of that reality, and there is a hope in Christ. Yes, right now you're caught in the middle of the now and the not yet, but there is hope because what Jesus has done on the cross, because of his own suffering and agony and pain and apparent defeat and subsequent victory, he reminds us in the end that hope will win. Life will overcome death. Joy will overcome sorrow. Healing will overcome sickness. Freedom will overcome bondage triumph will overcome tragedy it will and in the meantime in the middle we wait and we wait and we worship and we wait and we allow the kingdom of God to work through us as we embody it in every situation that we find ourselves in and I know nobody likes to wait I don't like to wait there's a lot of rich people out there in this world that have made a lot of money because none of us like to wait I'm not one of them I'm just saying there are them and what's worse, in the waiting, we struggle to hold on to the realities of a powerful, galaxy-spinning, earth-creating, omnipresent, all-powerful God in the middle of all of this tumultuous agony and difficulty and pain. We struggle sometimes. In one of the television shows that I watch with my wife, the husband and wife 
in the show have this game that they play called Worst Case Scenario. Worst Case Scenario. And here's what I want you to know. Let's, let's play that as we close today. I want to play this game with you. Worst Case Scenario. What are you afraid of? Like, literally, what are you anxious about right now? What is it that's caused you to be angry at somebody or something or you're fearful about, you're afraid, because the scripture has a lot of scriptures that over and over again, do not be afraid, do not fear. So what is it that's caused you to be afraid? So I want you to think about the worst case scenario of all the anxieties and fears that you're having today, but don't stay there. I want you to add what Jesus told Mary and Martha when they thought the worst case scenario was the fact that Lazarus had died. And he said, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in him, though they die, yet they shall live. So maybe this is one of yours. I'm going to be all alone. I'm going to be all alone. Worst case scenario is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him, though they die, yet they shall live. And because of that, you'll be a part of Jesus' church and Jesus' family forever. And he puts the lonely, Scripture says, into eternal family. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You will always be loved, and you will always be welcomed by Jesus. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm, I've, I've got this disease, or I'm going to get this thing, and, and I'm going to die, and it's going to be terminal. Worst case scenario, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him, though they die, yet they shall live. I know this, no matter what happens to me in this life, I will be happy, healthy, whole, and strong forever. I, I feel, I'm afraid I'm going to run out of money and all this stuff that's going on and, and job loss, and, and I'm going to run out of money. I'm going to have no way to provide. Worst case scenario, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in him, though they die, yet they shall live. That whether in plenty or in want, Jesus is in fact our true treasure. Long term, I'm going to inherit riches that will never fade and never perish and never go away, and that is Jesus himself. And all the while, he is my ultimate provider. So because of what Jesus has done, we remind ourselves of the most repeated command I said a moment ago in the Bible. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Yes, this is a reality, but there is hope. God's promises in eternity are infinitely more real and better than any present painful and broken reality you may find yourself in. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but that's when we continue to press into Jesus. And we can be realistic about our suffering and realistic about our pain and still live in hope. Why? Because our current reality is not our ultimate reality. Aren't you glad of that? That your current reality is not your ultimate reality? And if things are great right now, then awesome. But I want you to know this. Jesus is coming again. No matter how good things are going or how bad things are going, Jesus is coming again. Colossians 1 says it, powerful verse, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You ever hear that phrase, the hope of glory? It's not talking about necessarily right this moment. Yes, there's hope for today, but the hope of glory is that day that we're going to be with Christ in heaven forever when everything is made right. It's the fulfillment of God's promises to restore us and all of creation to their rightful place, to what he did when he started it and where he's taking us in the end. In Romans, he says that. In 1 Peter, he echoes this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is not wishful thinking. This is a hope that is anchored in Christ alone. I'm confident and it's a joyful knowledge that we can have that we're being changed by God and will one day see Jesus face to face, having been conformed to his image. And until then, we live in the reality of what's going on right now, suffering, pain, difficulty, injustice, all the things that we go through with a hope that all things are going to be made right in Christ. They are. Best case scenario is that suffering and hope go together in this life 
to make us look more like Jesus and to bring more of his kingdom into the earth now until the day that he establishes his kingdom fully forever in eternity. And then one day, all of that suffering, all of that pain is going to be gone. And in the meantime, we live in such a way that embodies the kingdom of God so that it can be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we love God with everything that we have and we love each other the same way. Amen. Let's pray to our King. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us hope. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you right now, what are you afraid of? I believe that God is here to help those of you, and that could be all of us, that are having some anxieties and fears about things that are maybe difficult right now. But what's the worst case scenario? If Christ is for you, who can be against you? In the end, Jesus, who is Lord over all, is working things out for your good and his glory. Not for your ruin, but for your good. And maybe you're having a hard time believing that right now, and I am just praying by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are empowered right now by his Spirit to trust in him and put your hope in him alone. Your hope is not in anything in this life. Your hope is in Christ alone. And Lord, we do that. Our hope is not in our money. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in anything other than you, Jesus. And so if you're there today, let's just surrender those anxieties, surrender those fears. Be honest with God. Like I said, let's bring that honesty before him right now and let him meet us in that place of pain and suffering. Some of you are, are suffering right now. Some of you are in some painful situations, and we want to pray for your health and your healing and your wholeness, emotionally, physically, spiritually. We're going to do that. But I want you to know there's hope. This isn't the end, whatever it is. And then for those who have no hope for the future because you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then that can change today too. Very simply, humbly come to Jesus and confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Cry out to God and say, I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need you to be my Savior and Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. And at that moment, he will answer that prayer. Take up residence in your life, and you'll never be the same. I want to sing to Jesus with you, church. Let's worship him together. Let's stand to our feet and declare who he is as one voice. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.